14, 5 through 14 this morning. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihai-Hiroth in front of Baal-Ziphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Hey, Tapford, good morning. How are we doing today? Hey, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Luis, and I'm one of the pastors here at Taproot. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, just uh, have those handy or your Bible app. We are in Exodus 14, as you uh, heard. Uh, but before we get going today, um, today's a special day, you guys. It's a special day. So I want, I want to do something a little strange. I want you to just take a moment, just look around the room and take, take in the sights. Taking this moment, uh, because today, March 25th, 2018, is our last Sunday gathering together in this space as a mobile church. It's crazy, yeah. It's a big deal. We, we put together a few highlights of our time together in, uh, in this space this week, so let me read a few of those for you. Uh, our first mobile Sunday was May the 13th, 2012. Check out this picture here on the screen. Today we held our first mobile gathering at the Burien Community Center. May 13th, 2012. Our last Sunday here is this morning, May, March, May, March 25th, 2018. Five years and 11 months later. That's crazy. Total number of Sundays here, 307 Sundays. That's like a whole worth, like a whole year of Sundays, you know? Around 300 sermons. We had special days, Easter, elsewhere, church in the park, church. So around 300 sermons. Or on average, and I was being generous, if every sermon was about 15 minutes long, 
15,000 minutes of you listening to Bible preaching. That's a lot. Around 2,000 worship songs sang in this space. In lots of babies dedicated as well. Cool. Now check out this highlight here. Approximately 4,300 hours of uh, people volunteering to set up and tear down this space. Wow. I know. Yeah. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we will be remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and the life that only he can give at our new gathering space at the 152 building. And we found this picture as we were stalking the Taproot Facebook this week. Uh, Again, look at this post, October 29th, 2014. Look at this line, we have found a building. (laughs) We found it, we found a building. We are reaching out to all our friends and family to help us get into our new home. Three years and five months ago, we are going to be celebrating Easter at the 152 next Sunday. So cool. Baptizing folks, worshiping together, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Man, it's exciting. Now, uh, the building is not completely done. But how many of you guys know that we are, we also are a work in progress? But man, what, a, what, a, what an evidence of God's grace that we get to do that next week. As I was looking at uh, some of these images, I was putting together some of those numbers for us this morning. All I could think was this. God has been faithful to Taproot Church. That is a fact. He has been faithful to provide a building. He has been faithful to provide you. He has been faithful to give you uh, endurance and grace and patience. And he has provided finances, provided safety. He has provided favor with the city. Man, God has been faithful to us. God has been faithful to our church because that is who God is. God is faithful. Which I thought was really interesting that we were talking about how God has been faithful to Taproot for the past however many years. And today, the the main theme of our sermon is the faithfulness of God. It's like God in his providence knew that this whole thing was going to happen. And so today, the main theme, the, main, the big idea we're going to look at is this idea that God is faithful. The, our, our, literally, our, our main thought for this morning is this. Super simple reminder for you and for me this morning. When we are faithless, God is faithful. I need this reminder this morning. Let's just pray, church, and then let's get, let's get to our text here. Father, what, a, what an evidence of your grace it is to hear and remember how good and how faithful you've been to Taproot Church. This day is a special day, God. 
I pray that you, God, would receive all of the glory, God. You, you are the reason that, that we are here. You are the reason why we gather, God. You have been, you have provided and poured out grace and strength and patience and endurance and generosity. And you have been so good to taproot, God. Thank you. God, as we remember, as we look at our text this morning, as we remember that you are faithful when we are not, God, may our hearts be moved to worship and to trust in who you are and in your character, God. I pray that your word would go forth this morning, that it would accomplish what only it can do. Help me to be clear as I try to communicate your truth, God. And may, um, may your spirit move. May Tappy Church be an outpost of heaven this morning. May the gospel go forth in power as well. And I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, let's look at our text, Exodus 14, verses 5 through 9. Let me read this, and then we'll set it up for, for us. 5 through 9, Exodus 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots in all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse 9, then... The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea, by Harath in front of Baal Zephon. This is, let me set the stage for kind of what we're going to look at this morning. After 400 years, after 10 plagues, and after the Passover sacrifice, God has delivered his people from slavery, and now they are on a journey towards the promised land. God is literally leading his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it's important to remember, Pastor Darren uh, talked about this a bit last week, it's important to remember that God was leading his people on a route that made absolutely no sense. The only way in that it makes sense is as a means of God putting Israel in maximum danger from the Egyptians. If God had been interested in nothing else but soothing Israel's difficulty and unrest, he would have not guided them as he did. But God, of course, had a different purpose. Now, here are some facts, and I think that you can agree to this. God could have penned and protected his people in by the pillar of fire or the cloud. God could have turned Pharaoh's heart to realize the craziness of attempting to attack a people whose defense God had mounted already so many times and at such a terrible cost to Egypt and the whole nation. God could have done that, but... He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would follow after Israel again. 
He led, God led Israel on a route that was bound to strengthen Pharaoh's optimism that the Israelites could be caught, defeated, and recaptured. It was like they were bait. God backed up Israel against the sea, inviting the Egyptians to attack. The writer of Exodus makes it clear from the beginning that the Lord was setting up Egypt for one final catastrophic defeat to make clear to the Egyptians and to his people that he was God, that there was no other. And the result was that when God intervened, when he would deliver Israel from danger in the most spectacular way, the lesson would be unmistakable, powerful, and glorious. God revealed himself to Israel before the advancing Egyptian army in a way that he could not have done and never to the same effect had she, Israel, left Egypt uneventfully and never saw the Egyptians again. Now that's the setup for our focus this morning. What I really want to focus on today is verses 10 through 14 of our text. Now I want to take a few moments to explain how this applies to us today. Let's read our text. Exodus 10, 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here's what's happening. Pharaoh, as we read earlier, changed his mind. The Israelites have their backs against the sea. Before them is wilderness, flatlands. And coming after them are hundreds of chariots and horsemen. The the text says, literally, the whole army of Egypt was coming after them. And if you know the story, if you know anything about the, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know this. Most likely, most of the army coming after the Egyptians had just experienced incredible pain. Most of them probably had just lost a son in the last plague. So can you imagine, dads, moms, how angry would you be? How angry were these guys that did not fear God, just lost their sons? They were probably ready to slaughter the Israelites, bloodthirsty for vengeance and retribution. And what were God's people supposed to do? Where were they supposed to go? They were not soldiers. They were not warriors. They had never been in a fight. They might have been dressed for war, but it was more like just wearing a costume. It didn't fit They were also not going to swim across the Red Sea. So what were God's people supposed to do? The only option seemed to be that they had to go right through this army that was bloodthirsty for vengeance. And coming after them with the desire to kill and destroy them all. Like the Hunger Games, 
the odds were not in their favor. The outlook was grim, grim. But the only exception was that God was with them. He was for them. It is always good to have God on your side. God had literally been showing off to them for the past few weeks. He literally was twisting, undoing creation to serve his purposes. Hail, wind, disease, life, death, blood. Yet his people, we, hello, have always been a little slow to learn our lessons. Look at their response in verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How many, how many of you guys have ever done this? How many of you guys have this thing that maybe you've said to God before, God, if you just do this one thing for me now, if you can help me on this tough situation, if you just come through for me right now on this one thing, then all my doubts, all my fears will be alleviated forever. And for the rest of my life, I will serve you, be fully committed to you. Anybody? How, how, maybe in school. Anybody did this in school? You forgot you have a test, and you go, God, please, please help me. I got to pass this test. Help me. And you, you become super spiritual, right? You, pro you make all these promises. I will never do this or this or this. And then next semester or next quarter, God, would you, this last time, you know, we do this. There's a story about Martin Luther. The story goes that the great reformer, when he was enrolled in university studying law, found himself one night trapped, engulfed in this crazy lightning storm as he was riding his horse back to his house. Because that's what you do. It is said that Martin Luther prayed to God, God, if you just please save me from this storm, I will drop out of university, become a monk, and serve you for the rest of my life. This is actually a true story. God actually saved him, and Martin Luther did drop out and become a monk. But I think that this is like the exception to the rule. <laughs> Most often, the complete opposite happens. What the Bible shows us, what experience confirms, is that this is categorically not true. The Israelites were a people who just moments ago, we're in complete celebration. They were free, no longer oppressed, no longer slaves. They had plundered the Egyptian uh, nation, literally weighed down with silver and gold and livestock and treasure. This was the greatest empire in human history up to this point, and the Israelites had just plundered them. 
If I was one of them, then I would be jacked up excited. This would have been the kind of party and celebration that would have been hard to wrap our minds around. And all of a sudden, they hear something. Anybody ever seen the original Jurassic Park? You know when the car breaks down and the, the camera goes to the cup of water and there's the ripples, you know? And something big and bad is coming. And I can imagine this moment. They hear a rumble in the distance. They see a dust cloud forming. And they realize that it is the Egyptian army coming after them. And just like that, they turn on God. And they begin to make accusations. This is what their response was. They went from celebration to accusation in just a moment. They went from, God, we are free. Thank you. We love you. We are no longer slaves to, God, you are not good. God, you've betrayed us. God, you are not for us. God, you don't keep your promises. You don't really deliver. You are not who you say you are. You don't love us. Your character is flawed. Celebration to accusation. And this is what we do. At least it's what I do. I'm cruising down the highway, fourth gear, smooth ride, some difficulty, some adversity, some suffering, some uncomfortableness comes my way, and just like that, I shift to reverse. Think of all that God had done to get his people to this moment. The length that God had gone to bringing his people out of bondage and slavery. And this is their response. This is their knee-jerk reaction. They're not even completely out of the woods before they turn on God. But you have got to love the way that God responds. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here you've got the Israelites. Here you've got God's people pointing the finger at God. Accusing God. God, you're not faithful. You're not good. You're not kind. And on and on. Anybody ever wag their finger at you? Gosh. Can you imagine this? God, you are, you know, whatever. And this is God's response. Children, don't be afraid. When we are faithless, God is faithful. God's people turn their backs on God, waving their finger, wagging, you know, whatever, accusing God. And God says, I've got your back. I've got you. I'm with you. I'll save you. I'll fight for you. I'll deliver you. I'll rescue you. I love you. I am for you. I will keep you. I will protect you. When we are faithless, he is faithful. 
faithful. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are unfaithful, he is faithful. And in a couple of weeks, we'll see how God delivers them and comes through for them. But what does this all mean for us? What does this mean for us? How does this apply to our life? How many of you guys have ever faced what the Puritans call a severe mercy or a dark providence? I mean, think, think through those moments in your life. How many of you guys have ever experienced a situation, a moment in time where you thought, how is this going to work out? Or a moment where you thought, why is God letting this happen to me? How many of you guys have ever thought, how are we going to make it? Anybody ever had those thoughts before? Well, in the face of a situation that seemed impossible, in the face of incredible adversity, this is what Moses said to the people. Four things he said. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. God will fight for you. And number four, be still. Other translations say, be silent, which literally translated means just shut up. Isn't that crazy? Now, I'm not sure about you, but those four things are the farthest from what I do when faced with intense and severe difficulty and trials. I typically Number one, freak out in fear. Number two, lack in faith and my confidence is shaken. Number three, I want to fight for myself and fix things or figure them out. This is the DIY culture, you know, do it yourself. And lastly, I am restless, anxious, not at peace, not still, not quiet. Anybody else like me? Or am I literally alone in this room? <laughs> Which camp do you land in? Just like in our text, this is what I do. I'm cruising down the highway. Something really hard comes my way, and I shift to reverse in just a second. And again, this is what Moses said to his people in the face of incredible difficulty and adversity. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. God will fight for you. Be still. Be silent. The Bible is full of this language. And if I could summarize those things into one phrase, I would say that basically what Moses said to the people was this. In the face of incredible adversity, difficulty, just really tough situation, Moses said this literally, wait for, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Now, Taproot, this sounds very nice. Sounds very Christian. Sounds very clean, very, very spiritual. But this is hard. It's not very pleasant. It's not easy. The question then becomes is how do we do that? How do we, how do we get there? How do we, how do we, how do we, Learn to wait on the Lord. What does that mean? How do we wait for God? And I want to explain what waiting on God looks like and how we do that 
with taking a look at a verse in the book of Isaiah. If you've got your Bibles, flip over with me just for a moment to the book of Isaiah, chapter 31. Now, the context for this verse is that the Israelites are in incredible danger from their enemies. They are surrounded. And the temptation would be for them, for us, to quickly seek help from man instead of waiting for God to act. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Look at this last line here. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Waiting for God means this. First, looking to God. Seeking him in his will before any human, any earthly help is pursued. In short, we wait for God when we pause to pray before we act. Psalm 106.13 says this. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. The first act of waiting is to seek God's counsel in prayer before any attempt is made to solve the problem ourselves. This is really hard for me. I see a problem, I want to fix it. I don't want to stop and pray. But that is relying on myself. The first act of waiting is to seek God's counsel in prayer before we try to do anything to fix whatever problem faces. And it should go without saying that when we wait for God's counsel, for God's response, and he could use many means to counsel you, but when he does speak, when he does respond, we are going to humbly, wholeheartedly trust him and be completely open to it. We are not telling God what he must do. We are like patients calling the doctor for advice and help on how we are to treat the pain or health issue that we are feeling. Now the answer from God might come in a couple of ways, both of which involve more waiting. God might tell you to do something or God might tell you to do nothing. One chapter before in Isaiah 30, 15 through 16, this is what the Bible says. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Look at this line here. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said no. We will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. 
In other words, in this text, God's will was that his people would let him save them in quietness and rest. But they preferred to escape their own way, and God did not work for them. So when we pray for God's counsel, we must be ready and prepared to hear God say what Moses said to the people of the Red Sea. Fear not. Stand firm. Behold the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be still or be quiet. The second thing waiting means is trusting in God enough to be still when he says to be still. Then he will bear his arm and work for you. Now back to the doctor analogy. You call the doctor, you're sick, something's wrong. The doctor may call and say to you, here's your prescription, take these pills, eat healthy, exercise, do something. God might say, do this, go ahead, act, enter the battle, respond. In 2 Samuel 5, 19, when the Philistines were pursuing David, David the king said this, the Bible says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. David did not take matters into his own hands. Anybody have a difficult time doing that? Gosh. David did not take matters into his own hands. He waited for God. He sought God first. Then the Lord said, act. Do, do this. Enter the battle. But the thing you got to remember, and this is a, like, a, like, a, like a change in, in the way we think, is that we do not stop waiting when we begin to act. The posture of our hearts does not change. The lesson of Proverbs 21:31 is this: The horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to who? God, the Lord. When we act in obedience, we carry with us a posture, a spirit of waiting and depending for and on His help. We say with the psalmist, Psalm 33. A king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a vain hope for victory. And by its great might, it cannot save. Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If God tells us when faced with whatever situation to take certain cautions or actions against the enemy, even in the midst of activity, we must keep that posture of waiting and depending on God for help. We know the Bible says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watch and stay awake in, in vain. So the third way that we wait for God is we keep and we have a sense of reliance 
a posture of reliance and being dependent on his work even when we are obeying and acting. We wait for God when we have a spirit of expectancy that though all our labors are not perfect and fragile and vulnerable and weak, nevertheless, God never fails. And the final result is in his hands. So, when, when circumstances come, and guess what? They will come. In which you feel that you got to do something. You got you to gotta fix this. Whatever that is, wait on God, and he will work for you. First, pray. Humble yourself before God. Seek his counsel. Submit to his wisdom and power. I have had situations in my life where I've believed and bought into the lie that I am an independent man who knows best and that only has led me to danger and trouble. So when faced with something hard, don't do that. Humble yourself. Seek God first. Pray. Seek for counsel. Submit to his wisdom and power. And then, if God says to be still, no matter how hard that might be, be still. Trust him. Leave it all in his hands. Trusting that he is God and he is sovereign, that his supernatural involvement will help in whatever situation you may be facing. Now, I don't mean just be lazy. I mean when you are the most prepared, when you are the most ready and capable and most primed for battle and think that most hangs on you and what you do, he might say, stay home, be quiet, don't make the phone call, just pray. Watch me act. And third, if God says, prepare, train, work, fight, act, do something, even then, maintain that humble posture, that humble posture of dependence on God. Have a spirit of expectancy that though your actions may be imperfect, the final issue is his. And he loves to work for people who wait for him. When you are faithless, God is faithful. I want you to think about this as we prepare for communion. The Israelites were in a situation that unless God saved them, they could not save themselves. The Red Sea to their back, the whole of the army of Egypt coming after them, God had to act on their behalf or they were as good as dead. That is not very different from us. Why do we need a savior? Because we are sinners. And there is nothing, nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Unless God works on our 
behalf. And guess what, church? He did. He sent Jesus. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are unfaithful, he is faithful. Look to God. Wait on him. Seek him first. If he says to be still, be still. Trust him. He knows. And if he says to act, even then, maintain a posture of dependence on God, even as you act. Let's pray. Father, I I am so thankful that you are a God who is faithful. You are a God who, uh, who never changes. You are the same yesterday, today, forever. And we can trust you. We can trust you, God. And Father, I, I don't know all the situations, all the all the baggage that we have carried into the room today, but I know you. And I know that you love your people, that you are for us, that you care for us. I know that you are good. And so, Father, as as we face difficult seasons, help us to look to you first, God. Help us not be prideful. God, help us to not believe the lie that the independent person knows how to flourish. Help us, God, to surrender ourselves in humility and seek you first, God. To trust you. If you say to be still, and even when you say to act, help us, God, to completely depend on you. Thank you for the reminder, God, that when we fail, when we are faithless, when we blow it. You don't. You're still good. You are still for us. You're not mad. And God, I thank you for Jesus. The Bible says when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything, you brought us back to life. Thank you, God, that when we could not save ourselves because we can't, you saved us. Let that truth affect us, God. Let us be ambassadors of that truth, God, everywhere we go. And let us rest in the simple reminder that you're faithful. You're faithful. Let that simple truth penetrate our hearts this morning, God. You are good. You are for us. You are on our corner. You are on our side. You love your people. You are faithful, God. And may that truth bring much peace to your people this morning. Hope, encouragement. We're not alone. You're with us. Thank you, God. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to respond by singing a little bit more. We're going to take communion, communion as well. So in the, next, in the first couple songs, come on up.
uh, take the elements and just hold them. Pastor Darren will come in a few moments and lead us through the elements. And we're going to sing and respond to this great, faithful God. And after that, uh, parents, you can go ahead and go grab your kiddos, bring them in so they can worship with us. But let's respond. God is good. He's faithful. Let's worship.